Hey y'all. So when it comes to bodies, weight loss is not really something that I'm pursuing right now. But as you know, one of Vanessa's family members has been taking a GLP-1 medication and it's worked really well for him. So if that is part of your journey, you should check out the Roe Body Program. Roe provides access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Roe's partner handles all the insurance paperwork to help get the medication covered. If eligible for medication, patients have access to their provider on demand for any questions. Go to ro.co slash infamous. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's ro.co slash infamous. Campsite Media. I was a mom of two, and um, it was an extremely busy life, and my husband and I had toyed with the idea of three. It wasn't something that we were discussing at that exact moment, but my little Fifty Shades of Grey baby happened. My name is Farah. I live in Atlanta, and I am a very big fan of Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean... I read those books. We were having a lot of sex. So it just kind of reignited that sexual being that I think um, we all are. And it it almost gave me license to be like, oh, I remember who this person is. I'm going to revisit her. And I was fine with my husband. And then one day I said to my husband, like, I think I'm pregnant. And he said, you probably are. <laughs> so that's pretty much was the story we also told um, at her baby naming. We are in our temple. All of our family and friends are there. I mean, there are a hundred people there, maybe more. And we're in this beautiful chapel and we're talking about, you know, um, the miracle of life and what her name means and all these, you know, spiritual things. And my husband gives a speech and he's known to be extremely dry and um, witty. And during his speech, he says, you know, we're so lucky, she was so beautiful. And then he brings out, uh, we all know that my youngest daughter's the Fifty Shades of Grey baby. And thank God there were only three books because the shops closed. And then, um, my rabbi got up and said, oh wait, there's a movie coming out. Everyone erupted in laughter and hysterics and shock. It was, I mean, I've never turned so red in my whole life. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous and I'm Vanessa Gregoriatis. So this is going to be a very fun and sort of frivolous episode. It's going to be related to what you just heard Farah talk about. It'll be about the Fifty Shades of Grey story, but not just the book. It's about what Farah's rabbi joked about. It's going to be about the Fifty Shades movie. Okay, so to set the scene, 
sometimes there are movies that go really, really wrong. Like, what people always talk about is this movie from the 80s named Ishtar. Oh, God. I got a feeling something went wrong and now I'm a blind camel. Ishtar has become part of Hollywood lore. Not because it's a great movie, but because the production went completely off the rails. It was filmed on location in Morocco, and the director was impossibly picky about the way the sand dunes looked. The perfect, rare, blue-eyed camel they needed was eaten before the animal trainer could buy it. And so much money was just wasted. Basically, everything went wrong. Unlike Ishtar, which flopped, Fifty Shades was one of the biggest movies of the year when it came out. There was so much hype around it, such high expectations. There was even merchandising around it. Nearly as many people went to see it as the Star Wars movies. You almost wouldn't know that the film was also such an absolute nightmare to make. I mean, how do you make a movie out of a book that was so popular, that has such diehard fans like Farah, the woman you heard earlier? How do you make it live up to their expectations and get an even bigger audience of people who didn't read the books? I mean, this is like a Marvel movie, but with kinky sex instead of superheroes. Making a movie with such high stakes is not easy. And, most importantly, when the book writer is calling the shots on the film set, it becomes a total shit show. Whether or not you're a fan of the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, you probably remember all the hype around it. We've been talking about it since Random House started publishing the books. They've sold well over 100 million copies. These were romance novels, but really, they were also porn. And not just heaving bosom stuff. It was a little more hardcore. Ropes and chains and flogging, all that stuff. The basic premise is that a rich, handsome Seattle guy, Christian Gray, falls in love with a beautiful college student who is so unaware of her prettiness that she works in a hardware store. And she's also a virgin. But he can't be in a normal relationship because he has some trauma in his past. So he wants to be in an S&M relationship. She's sort of weirded out at first. But then... She agrees to be his submissive, and she gets super, super into it. These books captivated an audience of people like Farah, mainly moms. I think it was a little bit about kind of being dominated and not having to think. And I think as, again, as like a mom and a, and a wife and someone who has a job, like you're, you're constantly thinking, right? I don't think my brain ever turns off. And so it was the idea that you could be in some sort of relationship or have these experiences where you don't have to think about anything. Over a hundred million copies of the books were sold. That's just unbelievable for the romance and erotica genres. And more than that, the books broke into mainstream pop culture and had a real moment. Literary critics reviewed them in newspapers and magazines. Even Salman Rushdie weighed in. He said, it made Twilight look like war and peace. But others had more positive things to say, like, and I'm paraphrasing here, it's pretty good for porn. And that's a really good point. 
Nobody expects Smut to win a Booker Prize, so why should we expect more from Fifty Shades of Grey? Still, if Salman Rushdie felt the need to tell everyone he read it, well, good for E.L. James, the middle-aged mom who wrote it. Oprah Winfrey is claiming to be one of your biggest fans. For me, it doesn't get much bigger than that. No, it doesn't. She's a goddess, yes. So I, I, it's, 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 it's lots of pinch-me moments. I'm thinking, is this me? Is this my life? That's E.L. James, the woman who wrote the Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy. Her real name is Erica Mitchell, and we reached out to her with some questions, but she didn't respond. E.L. James has two sons, who were teenagers when the Fifty Shades movie came out and one can only imagine what it was like for them at school. She also has a husband, Niall Leonard, who's a TV writer. He wrote on a BBC show called Monarch of the Glen. I think it's a comedy. Is that the Cairn Lochan nursing home? Yeah, you've sent us a bill for Angus Mackay, my great uncle. Yeah, the thing is, he's no longer with us. What do you mean he's with you? E.L. James also worked in TV as a production executive, planning schedules and budgets and making sure deadlines were met, basically hurting creative types. In other words, she lived a pretty regular ho-hum life. And to anticipate your question, no, the woman who would write Fifty Shades of Grey does not seem to have had a particularly spicy marriage either. Her husband has said, I'm the least romantic fecker that ever lived. I once bought her a tin opener for Christmas, and my first experience of kinky sex was her trying to shove it up my arse. He's Irish. But E.L. James's life changed when she saw the Twilight movies. I've never wanted a human's blood so much in my life. I trust you. She said it stirred something in her, so she bought the books, read them all in one sitting, and then started lurking in the fan pages. Eventually, she discovered the fan fiction pages. And then she started writing. She posted her story. It was popular. Then it got picked up by a small Australian publisher. E.L. James quit her boring day job. And somehow, the book took off. Then Random House picked it up, and it really took off. They're romantic fiction writers who put a lot of sex in their books. I don't know why this one has particularly taken off. Okay. I really don't. There is something. I don't know what it is. Hopefully, it's it's a very entertaining tale. It's it's a love story. They're very three-dimensional, the characters, and you watch them grow um, and stuff. So I think that's probably what it is. Yeah, that's probably what it is. E.L. James was becoming an international sensation. She was even invited on the hit Norwegian talk show, Skavlan. The show brought together pop culture figures, intellectuals, politicians, and one of the other guests in this particular episode was Margaret Wallstrom. She had a pretty serious job. She was the former UN Special Representative on Sexual Violence in Conflict. So at first, you might think, what a crazy mix of guests on this show. What are these Norwegians thinking? But then... Actually, I read the whole book. I started to read the book on the plane, and then suddenly I found myself looking around. (laughs) (laughs) Do they see what I'm reading? I thought a lot about why 
I read it to the end because I hate to break the news, but you will, of course, not get the Nobel Prize. But why do we read it to the end? I think it's the way you write about the, the experience of, of sex because it is his wishes, but still from a woman's perspective of sexual pleasure. Yeah. The Swedish UN sexual violence lady wasn't the only prominent figure who thought that Fifty Shades of Grey was a page turner. Wolf Hall is better than Fifty Shades of Grey, but which one did I get through in a day? Which one took me two weeks to get to page 277? That's novelist and screenwriter Brett Easton Ellis reading me one of his many tweets about Fifty Shades of Grey. I read Fifty Shades of Grey in a day, and I just whizzed right through it. Brett is best known for one of his novels, which was turned into a movie. Howard, it's Bateman, Patrick Bateman. (laughs) You're my lawyer, so I think you should know I've killed a lot of people. Some escort girls in an apartment uptown. Uh, some homeless people, maybe five or ten. Um, an NYU girl I met in Central Park. I left her in a parking lot behind some donut shop. I killed Bethany, my old girlfriend, with a nail gun. And uh, Paul Allen. I killed Paul Allen with an axe in the face. His body is dissolving in a bathtub in Hell's Kitchen. American Psycho. It's about a psychopathic finance guy with secret, violent, hedonistic fantasies. Wait a second, you might be thinking, a businessman with secret, violent, hedonistic fantasies? That sounds just like Fifty Shades of Grey. I've got to read Fifty Shades of Grey. So I read the book, and I was thinking to myself as I read it, okay, this isn't really very good, but it is kind of compelling. It would make a great movie. It would make a great movie. And I called my agent up and I said, uh, I, who's writing Fifty Shades of Grey? And she said, uh, he said, well, that's like the most coveted, thought-after assignment in town. Um, everyone was telling me they're going to get a woman to write it. So you're never going to be up for it anyway. But Brett really wanted to write the Fifty Shades of Grey movie adaptation. And as terrible as he thought the writing was, he saw something in the story. He felt a connection to it. It made sense to me because it was about young people, and it made sense to me because he was rich, and he reminded me a little bit of Patrick Bateman. What I liked about it was, okay, you have to change all the dialogue, but you have something that I've always been very interested in. You have a love story that is very sexual, and it's built around sex, and each sex scene is kind of a dramatic scene, and you would make it a dramatic scene. Not to mention, this was very clearly going to be one of the biggest movies of the year. So Brett Easton Ellis took matters into his own hands. I uh, started to do this insane Twitter thing where I was pushing myself for the job. Fifty Shades of Grey, during meetings, someone said maybe a female screenwriter would work better, but I am a female screenwriter, I gasped. (laughs) like every day, and interacting with fans. Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, in a lot of ways, vertigo could be the template. People started to say, right, Easton Ellis should write Fifty Shades. This campaign, this grassroots campaign I started, let's destroy the bullshit stereotypes of Hollywood studio movies and cast a gay actor as Christian Grey in Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, Brad Easton Ellis is a super well-known author, but he hasn't had a big hit adapting someone else's book as a screenwriter. That might have made Brett a long shot for the job. But his Twitter campaign had an effect. A meeting was set up, and I went to Sony, and I thought, God, I think I really have a chance at this. He drove to the studio. He had a meeting with the film's producers, 
Mike DeLuca, and Dana Brunetti. This is the big in-joke in Hollywood, uh, where your parking space is. Like, if you get the valet, <laughs> if you get the valet or you're in the front lot, great. But then if you get the underground parking level four, you know, this thing probably isn't going to happen. So um, I had a great parking space, so that gave me hope. So I went into their offices and, um, you know, they were very polite, very nice. I had met uh, Mike on a couple of occasions and uh, for pitches or assignments or whatever. They're schmoozing, making small talk. Brett starts telling Mike and Dana about his vision for the film. My idea was to really retain the structure of the book, but to just make them more realistic, making them at least sound human and not have these young people sound like debauched 55-year-old twits was kind of the main thing to make them sound American because they completely don't sound American at all to make them sound younger and then keep this kind of structure of pushing these boundaries, these sexual boundaries that he needs to have to be fulfilled and that she goes along with for a while and then at the end she can't. And it's his kind of tragedy, quote unquote, in a way. Um, and, and you can make it hot, you know, you can make it hot. Brett's going through his pitch. He's excited, he's energized. It's going really well. And I, we started talking about it, and I could tell they were humoring me. They are completely humoring me. I, you know, felt my chances <laughs> okay, not great after the meeting, but they were very friendly, very nice. Fifty Shades of Grey, a very positive meeting with Michael Zabluke and Dana Brunetti. Seems we're all on the same page. My manager called me, I think, the next day. And, and then it was known. Brett would not be writing the Fifty Shades movie. It would be a woman, just like everyone expected. A screenwriter named Kelly Marcel. I mean, I think Kelly Marcel, Marcel was in negotiations or whatever by the time that meeting happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, whatever. And then, and then I kind of stopped. Or not, or I went a little further. Kelly Marcel, Kelly Marcel. Kelly Marcel is writing this for Fifty Shades of Grey. This is the movie they want to make? Arg. I was saying that, who is this person? Why is she writing it? Whatever, I was a little bit crazy back then. (laughs) Not long after Brett was passed over for the job, he went to a party at Robert Pattinson's house. That's right, the sexy vampire on Twilight, AKA the inspiration for Fifty Shades of Grey. And guess who was at the party? E.L. James, AKA the lady who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Of course, Brett had to go and talk to her and ask her what the hell his meeting with the producers was all about. He told this story on his podcast. She told me that it was never going to be in the cards for me. Well, then why didn't you just tell me whenever I tweeted about this or tweeted at you, Erica, to stop, I asked. She answered, because I didn't want the tweets to stop. They were very entertaining and I was amused by them. Interestingly enough, much later, Brett and Kelly Marcel, the screenwriter who was chosen for Fifty Shades of Grey, would become friendly. And Kelly would go on Brett's podcast and tell him, you dodged a bullet. Before she wrote the script for Fifty Shades of Grey, Kelly Marcel wrote the screenplay for Saving Mr. Banks. That's probably why, at first, Brett was like, who is this person? But it was kind of a big film, starring Tom Hanks and Emma Thompson. Pamela Travers, 
You can't imagine how excited I am to finally meet you. Would you mind? My name is Mrs. Travis, Mr. Disney. Oh, Walt. Now, you got to call me Walt. It's about when Walt Disney produced the film adaptation of Pamela Travers' book, Mary Poppins. And just stick with me for a second, because I promise you, this is actually relevant. You see, what happened when they made that movie was Pamela Travers wanted a whole lot of creative control over the adaptation. Responsible's responsible. No, 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 no. Responsible is not a word. Needless to say, it caused quite a bit of tension. And in the end, in real life at least, Travers hated the movie. So Kelly Marcel wrote a screenplay about the trouble with adapting a book into a film when the book writer wants too much creative control. Well, now she was about to live that movie. All the studios wanted to make the Fifty Shades of Grey movie, so E.L. James was able to secure this bizarre fairy tale dream that every writer has of controlling her own film set. She would get a producer credit. She would get to choose the screenwriter and the director and the cast. She got to preside over all sorts of arcane details, things like the exact costumes and the layout of Christian Grey's apartment. And most importantly for Kelly, she had final say over the screenplay. Kelly talked about this on Brett's podcast. The book's the book. And when you're adapting a book, you know, you have um, a blueprint. But I very much wanted to do something different with the mm-hmm. screenplay. Um, and when I spoke to the studio and the producers and everybody and made that quite clear and they were very enthusiastic about that and um, and kind of loved the things that I wanted to do. I didn't want the story to be linear. I wanted it to begin at the end of the film. And so you start with the spanking and you have these um, sort of flashes that go throughout the film. I wanted to remove a lot of the dialogue. I felt like it could be a really sexy film if there wasn't so much mm-hmm. talking in it. And so that's really the script that I initially delivered. When I delivered that script was when I realized that all of the, uh, you know, all of them saying, yeah, absolutely, this is what we want and you can write anything you like and get crazy and get artistic with it was utter, utter bullshit. Erica was like, I don't, this isn't what I what I want it to be and I and I don't think that this is uh, the film that the fans are looking for. She ended up coming into my house for a week and we kind of wrote uh, side by side and put things back in. Um, and ultimately Erica did have all of the controls. So there wasn't ever going to be a point where the producers or the studio could step in and say, no, no, we're going with this right. first draft. So E.L. James basically tore apart Kelly's script and then went to her house every day for a week to rewrite the thing and make it more like the book. Same chronological structure, same dialogue. You can probably imagine this was not a great experience for Kelly. Nobody holds your head, a gun to your head and says, be a screenwriter, but at the same time, it is a, it's a very tricky job. And then piling on top of that, the the amount of control that other people then have over the thing that you've sweated blood and tears over is is what makes one tortured. Meanwhile, the production team was looking for a director. E.L. James had some thoughts. It was reported that she wanted it to be a woman, although she denied that, and she wanted the final say on who it would be. I mean, everyone, everyone in town went into interviews. Gus Van Sant went in for interviews. I mean, 
Who else? Everyone was trying to get that directing gig or that writing gig. In the end, the person who would direct the movie, she wasn't going to have it any easier with E.L. James than Kelly did. In fact, things on the film set would only get more complicated and more tense. That's after the break. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question. Who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi points system, they never imagined somebody might actually try to snag it. But a 23-year-old did. And suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. I've always struggled with finding time to manage my finances. At the end of a busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all of my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions I no longer use. But now I use Rocket Money and it does all that for me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. I can see all my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com infamous. That's rocketmoney.com infamous. rocketmoney.com infamous. Okay, all right. Because <laughs> it's pretty, you know, it's very, it's a lot of vertical lift. I know. It's the fall. I'm in L.A., and I'm doing what a lot of people in L.A. do. This I'm hiking is up a hill. From Campside just Media. a couple of miles away from the Hollywood sign. Yeah. Whoa, is that a crow? Or raven? It's really iridescent. The hike was her idea. Let's just say I would not be trudging up a dusty hill if Sam Taylor Johnson hadn't just directed one of the biggest, most anticipated films of the year. She's blonde, she's fit, she's going way faster than me, all the way up to a fork in the trail. She turns around and she tells me our options. There's a couple of different, there's three options. There's the hardcore way, (laughs) semi-hardcore way, and then there's the... People think they're doing it the hard way. <laughs> the hardcore way, the semi-hardcore way, and the path for the people who think they're doing it the hard way. Personally, I would have opted for a Diet Coke and some air conditioning. But I think you can guess which path Sam Taylor Johnson wanted to take. I'll give you a hint. It wasn't 
the semi-hardcore way. I mean, I'll do it. <laughs> I'm an immersive reporter, so I'm like, I'll do it, okay? At the time of this hike, Sam Taylor Johnson is in her late 40s. She's a cute 24-year-old actor husband, Aaron Taylor Johnson. They both hyphenated their names when they got married. Sam has four daughters, two from a previous marriage, and two of them with Aaron. And get this, Aaron delivered those babies at home. I hope that gives you a sense of who this woman is. She's really cool, she's really tough, and if I wasn't a Diet Coke and air conditioning person, I would really, really want to be her. So why? Why is she directing the Fifty Shades of Grey movie? It took four years out just to you know, build family and focus on that and, yeah. and just forget about work. And, uh, and then I didn't realize how difficult it was to then get back in. Sam stopped directing for four years to be with her kids. And when she tried to get back in the game, it was much harder than she expected. But E.L. James reportedly wanted a woman to direct Fifty Shades of Grey, and there's not exactly an endless supply of prominent female directors in Hollywood. And lucky for Sam, she knew Mike DeLuca from a previous film they worked on, and now Mike was producing Fifty Shades. So like Gus Van Sant and everybody else, Sam went in for a meeting. I imagine it went like all these meetings go. They schmoozed, they small-talked, and Sam talked about her vision of the movie. Yeah. So it felt like a sort of, you know, a kind of hardcore telling of something um, yeah. deeply romantic that hit so many sort of charged areas within us. A hardcore telling of something deeply romantic. Hardcore. How very Sam. The girl is all sort of wide-eyed, naive, and excited by life, and, and very, you know, doesn't seem to have any kind of power. And in comes this almighty, powerful man. But by the end of end of it, mm-hmm. film is he's the one who has lost his power, and she's the one who's gained it. Sam makes Fifty Shades of Grey sound like an actually legitimately good story. I might not have wanted to read the books, but she definitely makes me want to see her movie version of it. If this was her spiel at the studio, it's no wonder that this arty director, who never made a studio film before, got the job. They called me the next day, 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you got the job, and we're announcing it <laughs> at midday. <laughs> oh, my God. So it was literally like, it was the minute the word 50 shades of grey was said, it was like I'd, I'd gotten onto a bullet train. Sam Teller Johnson read a lot more into Fifty Shades of Grey than many of the trilogy's ardent fans. I asked our Fifty Shades superfan, Farah, what she found appealing about the books. Was it the plot? Was it the character development? I mean, Christian Grey seems kind of complicated, I guess. What about the, like, his damage, like his familial damage and saving him? Yeah, that... It was, I mean, I don't know that that was even a factor. I think it was, it was about the sex, let's be honest. That's why everyone read that book. We didn't read it to find out, like, if he had mommy or daddy issues, no one cared about that. Um, and I know that's probably not what the author would want to hear, but 
if you ask any woman why they read that book, they weren't like, oh, we wanted to, you know, hope his issues with his mom got fixed. Yeah, no. We wanted to read about the, we wanted to read about the Red Room and what happened in there. Fair enough. Now that there was a script and a director, it was time to cast Anastasia and Christian. Dakota Johnson read for the role of Anastasia early on, and Sam says everyone immediately agreed that she was right for the part. It was always her, always her. Finding Christian was a little more complicated and maybe a little bit more than a little. E.L. James desperately wanted Robert Pattinson. After all, he was the one that she had in her head when she wrote the books. I mean, Fifty Shades started off as Twilight fan fiction. Pattinson wasn't into it. He talked about this on The Howard Stern Show. Is it true that you were offered the part? I love these stories. Fifty Shades of Grey, one of the, again, one of the biggest movies. Mm. I could see you playing that dude. She's just like some, she's a lady from England. And she's I was, got some wild fantasy. You know, I was talking to and I found out, and this is before the movie happened, I found out, it's like, one, her friend told me, like, oh, that's E.L. James. You wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. And I was a little bit drunk and stuff, and uh, literally just kept forcing her and forcing her to tell me every single one of her fantasies. And, <laughs> and she's got major <laughs> fantasies. She really, wants to be spanked and beaten. Really, yeah, no, it was fun. I mean, she was kind of absolutely terrified. So Sam and E.L. James and the producers and Dakota sat through hundreds of auditions for the role of Christian Grey. Go to work and you can just be like, oh, sit and <laughs> 20 It's hard to hear Sam over the wind and the sound of our boots and my panting as we hike up this horrible hill. But she's joking about what hard work it is to go to work each day and meet 20 devastatingly handsome men. Well, her work was about to get a lot harder. It's quite hard to embody everything that's written on the page with this one because it's just as, you know, successful, charismatic, physically perfect. Um, and then, you know, as you're finding someone who can act and be soulful and, and pull that role together was really tough. Eventually, they cast their Christian Grey. It would be Charlie Hunnam, a rugged, handsome, manly man from the show Sons of Anarchy. I want to say it's about motorcycles. I'm not going to lose my club. But then Charlie suddenly dropped out. Can you tell all your fans why you decided to not do the film? You know, I, I, I was doing my TV show and we ended up doing an extra episode which pushed us back. And then I was already attached to do Crimson Peak with Guillermo directing. And you know, Guillermo's my pal. I'm sure this is all technically true. But to me, it sounds kind of like a bullshit reason to drop out of a three-picture deal. I mean, it sounds like bullshit, right? Almost like he knew it would be an absolute nightmare to make these films. So it was back to the drawing board for Sam. Poor Sam. More auditions with hot guys. But actually, poor Sam, because now production was behind schedule and they could not fall behind for some very important reasons. First, because it messes up everyone's schedule and the budget. And second, because they had a Valentine's Day release date, obviously. And third, there was so much merchandising around this film. There was the obvious merch, like T-shirts and sex toys, and less obvious things like gross wine, toiletries, a $90 teddy bear wearing a suit like Christian Grey, and 
baby clothes. <laughs> well, maybe, given stories like Farah's, the baby clothes weren't that much of a stretch. Anyway, they finally cast a new Christian. It was Jamie Dornan, an Irish actor who was an underwear model, but also played a serial killer on the BBC show The Fall. Haven't you heard? There's a stranger in the pride. Fans were so disappointed that it wasn't Robert Pattinson or Charlie Hunnam, but Jamie Dornan really knows how to play sexy psychopath. Now, they were finally ready to start shooting the film. <laughs> My tastes are very singular. You wouldn't understand. Things were intense from the beginning. Jamie's wife, who was eight months pregnant, traveled with him to Vancouver for the filming. Um, was eight months pregnant, and she had to fly to Vancouver. She had everything set up, you know, and all her family in London, and hospital, and doctors, and everything. And she flew to Vancouver to unknown, had to find doctors, had to find Jesus Christ. And then, you know, they had to film a lot of weird sex scenes, which is always pretty intense for actors. Jamie said that he and Dakota had become like brother and sister. And if that grosses you out, don't worry. He wasn't actually completely naked while filming. He talked about this on Jimmy Kimmel. Yeah, I wear a, a, like a wee bag. Um, a what? Uh, what is it called? Well, th that's an expression that I say from where I'm from, a wee bag, but it doesn't mean it's actually wee inside. <laughs> I wear like quite a big bag. <laughs> Oh, we yeah, a huge, like, travel Things weren't quite as funny for Dakota, who had to glue a small piece of fabric to her hoo-ha and then get tied up and blindfolded and still act in the process. That's why Sam made sure there were as few people on set for those scenes as possible. It's just beyond this door. What is? My playroom. Like your Xbox and stuff? It's important that you know you can leave at any time. Why? What's in there? I meant what I said. The helicopter's on standby to take you whenever you want to go. You're a sadist? I'm a dominant. What does that mean? It means I want you to willingly surrender yourself to me. People go, well, what was it like in the sex scenes? Well, it's like this. Yeah, there's a big bearded bloke standing. <laughs> Next to you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But filming bizarre sex scenes was actually the least of their problems because E.L. James, the author, was on set dictating how things should be done. I was the producer on the film. I was there, uh, yeah, every day. She had a very specific way that she wanted this movie shot. And I came on board as a, you know, creative artistic director, which is why they hired me, um, with, a, with a polar opposite vision. And so the two of us, you know, we, 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 we collided. <laughs> Hollywood is notoriously tight-lipped about what goes on in boardrooms and on sets. Contracts often prevent directors or actors from sharing details publicly, at least before a certain date. And it's generally considered poor form to do so anyway. But there are, there are definite things that I really wish were still in the movie. And, you know, and if... And, Can you uh, talk about them? <laughs> oh, God, I wish. Um, no. <laughs> so we don't have specifics about what really went on as they filmed the Fifty Shades movie. But we do know how some people felt after working on the movie, because they talked about that in interviews a few years later. 
I think we debated everything. <laughs> when you have two people with a strong vision and, and, you know, hers is very much the book and mine is about a visual, you're going to lock horns. And yeah, we did. Yeah. But there were times where I had to really try and stick true to my vision and, you know, fight for it. Sam said she fought for the vision of her film. But it sounds like she didn't win many of those fights. Yes, I made a very um, successful movie, but the experience of it wasn't personally um, a, a success. Dakota Johnson told Vanity Fair that if she had known what it would be like, she probably wouldn't have taken the job. She also called it psychotic. And then she said it was so amazing, so lucky, but so so weird. One scene from the original screenplay made it into the final film, the sexual contract discussion between Anastasia and Christian. Also on page five, there are some terms which need clarification. Suspension. Hanging on ropes from the ceiling. For what possible reason? For your pleasure. Really? And mine. And then there's Kelly Marcel, the screenwriter who had to let E.L. James into her house every day for a week so she could completely rewrite her script. When I say my I, my heart really was broken by mm-hmm. that process, I really mean it. And, yeah. I, and that, so I don't see it out of any kind of like bitterness or anger or anything like that. It's just I don't... I, I don't feel like I can watch it without feeling some pain about, you know, how different... It is to what I initially wrote and also how, um, how I don't know, how kind of separated. We, we were a very, very tight team in the beginning of that process and, and it all became very sort of disparate towards the end. When you hear all these people talk about what it was like to work on this film, to work with E.L. James, it sort of sounds like they've been processing the experience in therapy. It seems like E.L. James had cut a deal with a studio that gave her way, way more creative control than authors ever get over a film adaptation of their work. And so whenever there was an argument between E.L. James and the director or the screenwriter, the set designer, whoever, E.L. James won. She had had a career as a production executive, and I guess that made her think she knew how to make movies. But she didn't know how to do all the creative stuff in filmmaking. It seems like she just knew how to do the production executive stuff. Basically, being bossy around the creative types. It's almost like a Revenge of the Nerds situation. And how did that impact the final product? Quite simply, the worst movie I've ever seen. It's domestic violence dressed up as erotica. And if there's one thing this movie is not, it's erotic. The problem is that no one really liked the movie, you know? Brad Easton Ellis expressed his disappointment in the film on his podcast. A.O. Scott in the New York Times called it, quote unquote, a terrible movie. (laughs) And that was a huge missed opportunity on everyone's part because because you're going to make the money anyway. You're going to make a lot of money no matter what you do. So why not make a good movie out of this? Why not make a movie that makes people look at the Fifty Shades brand differently, perhaps elevated, maybe prove people wrong, that there is something in the book that is interesting. More after the break. Anybody who has a sibling knows that sibling fights are unavoidable. But what if every fight you had was under a microscope, on a global scale? That's the reality for brothers Prince Harry and Prince William. 
They'd been each other's closest friends and allies since the death of their mother. But that all began to crack as they married and took wildly different approaches to their royal duties. Wandry's podcast, Dis and Tell, is hosted by comedians Sydney Battle and Matt Bellisai. Each episode unpacks one of pop culture's most iconic celebrity feuds, and they recently took a deeper look into the real reason William versus Harry started. It's actually much bigger than these two brothers, stretching back into the history of the British monarchy. Did their feud start with the royal family's mistreatment of Meghan Markle? Or was it something that began much earlier? Follow Dis and Tell on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. The big problem was that E.L. James made sure that every scene in the movie was exactly the way it was in the book and in her own head. And movies just don't work that way. Maybe she was trying this to please her fans, but adaptations are not supposed to be exactly like the thing they're adapting, because films are not books, and what worked in a book doesn't necessarily work in film. It's so obvious and simple and true. And when you hear Brett talk about it, it really is a small tragedy that the film got so screwed up. The Godfather isn't a good novel. Jaws isn't a good novel. The Exorcist isn't a good novel. The list goes on and on. But the people who adapted them knew what they were doing, knew how to move around the material, knew how to excise, you know, certain things that were not going to be cinematic. What about the Fifty Shades superfans, though? What about people like Farah? Did she rush to see it on opening night? Did she drag her husband along with her? I didn't go to watch it in a movie theater. I didn't think it would be the most comfortable experience to be sitting next to some stranger watching that those kind of scenes. I watched it at home. I watched it by myself, I think. Um, I think I watched it by myself and I was like, oh, it was fine. But um, it didn't do for me nearly what the books did, obviously. But remember, it was a trilogy, so there were two more movies to come. Sam Taylor Johnson and Kelly Marcel didn't work on them. I couldn't go through the journey of two and three in the same mm. same way, and and I don't think um, they could either. And it was you know it wasn't a sort of acrimonious, angry parting of ways. It was just like probably best. So who stepped in to write and direct those two other movies? Well, it had to be people E.L. James could trust to make the films exactly like the books. Anyway, this time they hired a male director. James Foley. He directed a bunch of Madonna videos in the 80s and the film Glen Gary Glen Ross. Put that coffee down. Coffee's for closers only. Dakota Johnson, at least, was not happy about the change. She said that Sam had brought a softer perspective, and it was different doing all these bizarre things with a man behind the camera. All I can say is, ew, and poor Dakota. As for the screenwriter, E.L. James just didn't have to look very far to find the right man. That's right. The new screenwriter was also a man, and it was her own husband, Niall Leonard. And they come back to the Red Room and re-explore and find some of the 
ecstasies that they discovered in the first movie. So how were the last two Fifty Shades movies received? Well, they didn't even do as well as the first one. Farah, our suburban mom superfan, watched those two alone at home, sitting on the couch. She says she wasn't into them, and anyway, by the time they came out, she was just sort of over the whole thing. So, in case you're wondering, no, watching any of the Fifty Shades of Grey movies did not lead Farah to having a fourth baby. Next time on Infamous. The idea that people's emotional connection to events online could be significant enough that negative events online created harm in the real world. What is OnlyFans? OnlyFans, in its simplest sense, is kind of like Instagram, but for you. Danielle Bregoli, a.k.a. Bad Baby, dropped a bombshell that she makes over $50 million in one year alone on OnlyFans. Sex happens in the brain at the end of the day. I mean, the physical side of it is not that difficult to simulate, okay? But if we can convince you that this sex robot, robot is alive or that sex experience in a, in, a, in a virtual reality headset or an augmented reality headset is alive, is real, then there you go. Why would you need another being in the first place? When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.